Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. Okay, we should be getting started for our monthly Q&A session, we're just gonna wait real quick until we find out if everything's live and healthy before we get into the details, but uh, this is a little bit earlier than we normally like to do them, because we like to do them at the end of the month, but it turns out for January and February we have them at the very end of the month on Thursdays, the 28th and 31st are Thursdays for those months, so we're gonna do this one on January 20th because we missed our one for December. All right. While we're waiting for questions to come in and for me to get word that uh, all the video is actually up and working, we did have a couple of questions I asked for on the community tab and the Facebook page where we got started, and uh, the one that we're going to start with is retirement age. Somebody had asked if we would have uh, how retirement would work if we had life extension and mortality. And that's kind of an interesting one because we can kind of see where that's starting off even nowadays. Retirement was not really something people did much in the past. If you look like more than a century or so back, you didn't really completely retire. And these days, people tend not to completely retire anymore either. They'll continue to work part-time or get involved in community groups. And so a lot of it's going to depend on the civilization you've got going for you, but you're not likely to have a pension or social security that just lasted forever. You know, you can do maybe 10 or 15 years or something like that for a 30-year work time, but I don't see how you'd be able to do that for, you know, centuries. So you might retire temporarily, basically take a sabbatical, uh, or you might just cut back once you have an income that was sufficient to support you uh, in your retirement. And then we also had a question um, about being able to get energy from tectonic plates. And uh, because there was a fair amount of energy in the Earth in terms of geothermal, and the uh, tectonic plates obviously are enough to release volcanoes, mountains, uh, and so on. I don't really know how you would tap that other than by geothermal power in a more classic sense. Those are usually fairly warm areas. And it is something you would like to be able to do because there's a decent amount of power there. But I think for the most part, you would get that as a secondary effect of whatever you were trying to do. I don't think it'd be profitable in of itself. But if you were using it as a way to go ahead and uh, get some free power while you're doing something to relieve that tectonic pressure, that might be a pathway that you would go. Alright, so we'll go ahead and start taking questions from the chat today at this point in time. Um, So, you know, there's a couple of volunteers who help out going through the comments as we go, and they pick questions up, so they need a little bit of time to pick them up and post them in there. Uh, Do be careful with your grammar and spelling, because I think we had the vacuum raccoons uh, last time around where somebody had done a typo, and I wasn't sure what they were talking about in terms of vacuum balloons. Alright, um... And while we're waiting for the first question to pop up there, let me just go ahead over our schedule real quick for next month. We still have two videos left for this month, uh, Space Prison Colonies, that's January 24th, and Fermi Paradox and Panspermia for January 31st. And then we'll have the monthly schedule for February popping up as a pop-up window as we go along. All right, first question from Abu Agak Dianagi, sorry if I mispronounced that. Question, what's your actual, what, what's actually the first rule of warfare in your opinion? Um, for those of you who are familiar with the first rules of warfare that we do from time to time, that's actually an old joke from the military. It seemed like every one of my sergeants always had a first rule that was the most important thing. And they never had a second rule. You know, it was always, this is the first rule, it's the most important thing you have to do. And I think that actually kind of reflects not just the military, but a lot of things where you have all sorts of priorities, all sorts of things you need to know what the most important thing is. And often there really isn't one that stands out by, you know, these are not things that stand out by themselves as something you would always have as the one thing you have to cover. Sometimes it would be something like shoot, move, and communicate, or whoever has the best intelligence is going to win, or whoever has the fastest army will win, whoever has the best technology is going to win. And in almost every one of these cases, then it's not like one of them is somehow more important than the others, but they're each totally vital, and thus that's the Force Wars of Warfare joke. Also, quite a few of them are contradictory. You know, the uh, Force Wars of Warfare is the best offense, it's a good defense, and then we have the other one, which is the best defense, it's a good offense. 
So in many cases, it's just trying to deal with the situation at hand and what seems to make sense to everybody at the top, and everybody's got their favorites. So uh, We have a question from Stephen B. Could you use the LIGO satellites to make a gravitational map of the universe? How many satellites would you need, and what would be a good distance between them? I'm not actually sure. The more you have, the better resolution you're always going to get. And uh, obviously, if you've got a limited field of view on those, you need to quite a few of them to overlap and create a, a complete map. Um, it is one of those things, because those are those can be very big detectors. I think that you would probably do spot detection. You know, just do little areas piece by piece and just kind of add it up to a single map. Because uh, in terms of the background for the universe, it's not going to really change that much, except for, you know, discrete events. Mike Harrington asks, why can't we transform atmospheric CO2 in a self-sustained hydrocarbons fuel cycle? It's only chemistry, isn't it? Yeah, actually, it is only chemistry. Uh, the problem is, and it's, it's very simple chemistry, taking water and carbon dioxide and turning it back into a hydrocarbon, a gasoline, butane, whatever, is chemically very easy. It's something we've known how to do as long as we've had cars. The problem is it's endothermic. When you burn a hydrocarbon, it releases heat energy, and you can use that for power. When you try to cram it back together, you're going to have to put that energy back in and then some more to actually just do the process. So if you try to run a cycle like that, it's going to cost you energy, not produce energy. However, and there's a critical caveat on that, we basically use fossil fuels as a, uh, we do use them for mainstay power generation, of course, um, but you can convert over to a completely nuclear or fusion-based system if you have that for producing electricity. Um, very large carbon neutral things. Um, we do use it for mainstay power too, though, like coal power plants. But what you can't do with those big power plants is make something that's mobile. You need to use a, a small fuel like a chemical or a battery. So potentially you could, and, and with batteries, you typically speaking are using way more energy to fuel that battery, way more cost to make that battery than it would cost for just plugging into the wall. So if you could produce gasoline with about twice as much energy as you get out of it. That doesn't work for mainstay power generation, but it's great for fuel, and that would make it a carbon neutral fuel. So potentially, if you have more energy abundance or you go very strongly nuclear, uh, fission nuclear, you could use gasoline basically as a battery, and again, a carbon neutral one. Uh, but you cannot use that process to create power as your baseline. You, you need something in the background that's producing power cheaper. Uh, that you can use to create that fuel out of. Uh, we have a question from Mike Mark Zimmerman. Would a Kardashev 2 type scale mega telescope about the size of the moon's orbit be able to provide accurate images of exoplanets and nearby star systems? Uh, I'd have to double check that. We did cover that one in the mega telescopes episode. If you build a telescope big enough, you'll get the resolution for it. The, that's one of those things where it comes down to, are you seeing a pixel, or are you seeing multiple pixels? And when we look at most stars, most planets, what we see is a single pixel. Uh, and you have to get much larger before it's going to actually take up more than one pixel and give you any sort of real resolution. You can get data off a pixel. You know, it's, it's, if your television screen is completely flat white, that is a single pixel. Um, and it, if it was dimmer, a dimmer white, that might tell you that there was a less bright object there, uh, if it's a uh, brighter white, a, a stronger object. But until you get a bigger resolution, I think it is about planet-sized to to get to uh, look at an exoplanet that's about 100 uh, light years away if you want to get like a good photograph resolution. That's the only way you can do that, and yeah, you can build telescopes that big, though I'm not sure you would want to. In most of cases, it might be easier just to do a flyby with a satellite. Okay, our next question is from Into the Flames. What's the general idea of the Happily Ever After video you are making? Um, that's actually another joke. We had noticed, uh, we always notice when there's a holiday on a Thursday. And we, uh, we never do them for Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving's always a Thursday and we're not going to do an annual Thanksgiving special. But uh, there was a holiday, March 14th is Valentine's Day. And so we thought it'd be fun to take a look at how relationships might work in the future in terms of things like that. And uh, I think the, the happy ever after thing is more of a nod towards the idea of very long lifespans. And, you know, is it possible to do relationships that last multiple centuries? And in science fiction, they often say that it is not. And that's, that's the most I'd say on that episode is that 
we're going to see if we can explore that and see if it's actually possible to contemplate relationships with people that might last, you know, th potentially thousands of years. Um, Kenny Cartmill asks, there has been more press regarding Elon Musk's Neuralink lately. What are your thoughts on that project? Nothing's really changed on that score with Neuralink. Um, it's something we need to be researching. It's just that right now it seems more like it's a very loose, you know, in state of intent that we'd like to be able to do a mind-machine interface. Uh, I haven't seen too much to indicate that there's really a, a, a solid roadmap to what we need to do to be able to, you know, usefully plug something into the side of your head and uh, have that spit out text with you just thinking about it or letting you manipulate something. Um, it's There's a lot of pathways you can go for that, and it's going to be figuring out which ones are easiest to access, which ones are easiest to adapt, because your brain is designed for certain types of bandwidth, and of course your eyes are one of the highest bandwidth. Um, so that's you know a perfect input source compared to, say, text or hearing that's more like in the kilobyte range, uh, you know, vision being megabytes. Um, it's a project I'd like to see move forward, but I, I'm not really seeing any, anything concrete there that's, you know, a product that's going to be out soon that we could really make use of. So we'll see how that goes, but until then, it's to me, it's a, a good project to start work on, but strictly speculative so far. <clears throat> uh, I guess as a follow-up that, Morv Johnson asks, uh, would you have an AI duplicate of yourself working with or for you? I've always liked this kind of concept of... Um, copying yourself or part of yourself to uh, help out with your work. Um, when we talk about copying minds, and uh, Alistair Reynolds has an example of this in his Revelation Space thing, they often have what's called a uh, beta levator, which is one that's been absorbing you for years and years, every moment of the day, and it just kind of replicates your patterns. It's smart, but it's not really sentient. Or, or maybe it is. That's one of the arguments going on in the book. If you had an assistant that watched you every day, um, they could edit your style very well. They could reply to correspondence for you very well. Um, you know, if you've worked with an editor or things like that before, they get to know you well enough that they can pretty much mimic your style fairly decently. That's very advantageous for applying to a lot of things where you don't have time for doing them or for a lot of basic scut work. Uh, however, there's a problem that you can't really reintegrate that into your mind. So you reply to an email from someone, only it wasn't you, and you don't remember that conversation. So while that would certainly be handy, I, I, I think it has a limited application. Um, you know, you could make like a beta level that would uh, be a doctor that could perform hundreds of surgeries for you instead of one person having to do that surgery. That's very handy, but to the individual, what you'd really be looking for is something that allowed you to have a copy of yourself that was off doing stuff, and then could reintegrate that into your own memories so that you had essentially done it yourself. Uh, as opposed to just having, you know, basically a very good assistant who is good at mimicking your behavior. Uh, Necratus asks, when it comes to uplifting, isn't there an issue where a god complex could lead to a civilization who uplifts lesser races, start becoming genocidal maniacs, killing anything they deem unworthy? Um, whenever you're dealing with a high-tech civilization in terms of its relationship to, to lower-tech civilizations, there's always going to be that god complex issue. That's kind of one of the reasons why the prime director from Star Trek is so attractive. It's very easy to abuse people that you are overpower, and because you can start off with it being for their own good. Um, it's also very easy when you're making those kind of life and death decisions about which species to lift up and which ones not to, to start saying maybe we should just sterilize this one out of existence. Maybe this one's just bad or isn't good, good for potential um, civilization. And that's not something that we can, you know, rule out could happen. Um, I think that's one of those things where you'd always have the temptation to do it. Um, same for uplifting in general. You know, if you can make a smarter dog or a smarter cat, there's a temptation to do that. And I don't know if that's ethical or not. That's something that we have to have that, that conversation about before we can actually do it or get into trouble. One of the advantages of science fiction is that it often tells us, um, uh, and for uplifting, the big book series that discuss a lot, this is David Brin's Uplift Saga. Um, but uh, with these ethical conversations, if you wait to have them till they're right there, ready to go, you're often going to get a lot of localized rationalizations and problems about the technology where people really aren't thinking about it with a clear head because it's very imminent. And, uh, you know, 
your first example, you have somebody who's getting ready to uplift uh, a, a horse because they want that horse to be smaller about racing. If that's the first one that people have to think about on, they're going to have a lot of ethical issues that are connected to the motivations for why that person wants to uplift that specific horse. And that could make them have um, very bad moral judgments, very bad precedents that were being set by that. So one of the advantages of science fiction, what we try to do here is to try to look at what those ethical issues are to start talking about them before they become an imminent threat that's uh, a little bit too up in our face to be thinking about collectively, uh, soberly, and calmly. Um, Luke B. asks, what is the most practical way to use hydrogen fusion to power a starship, assuming muon-assisted fusion is improved by reducing their energy costs and electron volts is reduced enough? Um, there's a couple of... When you're running a fusion drive, the question is, are you using it for power or are you using it for heat? Ideally, because heat, and you know, you're dealing with a very great deal of heat, how do you get rid of that? When you're blowing gigawatts of power out behind you at any given moment, if you're absorbing even a fraction of that, your ship's going to overheat and melt. So ideally, with like a fusion torch drive, all the fusion, all the energy, all the heat is getting smashed out the back, and you know basically you're not absorbing it. If you're running a power plant, though, to run something like an ion drive, then you're having to deal with all that heat. You're using that for power. You're losing a little bit of efficiency there, too, in that power generation process. Um, and you have to radiate that all away with big radiating fins, which is not too big an issue in space, but often you have problems with the critical temperature in that actual core because even if you got tons of radiating fins, you still have some core somewhere that's generating at 30,000, 40,000 Kelvin uh, or higher. You know, it could easily be in the millions of Kelvin. And uh, if you can't get that heat radiated away fast enough, then it's going to overheat and melt down and destroy your system. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the atomic drives we look at often seem like they're producing a much lower um, final velocity, cruising velocity, than you would expect based on them having a million times more energy than chemicals when they're when they are, uh, used. You know, a million times as much energy, you'd expect a thousand times the speed, but that's not usually what you're seeing out of those. And that's just going to be one of those things where it depends. You know, the one of the things that's nice about the Avian drive or the Daedalus where you're using nukes and blowing them up behind you is that... Um, all that energy is being released behind you. It's pushing you forward, and whatever you're reflecting away from that is, you know, all the heat you're absorbing is just whatever your absorption is on that, and you can have some big, wide plate that's doing a lot of the radiating. Um, and so that is one of the reasons why that approach allows a pretty high speed compared to when we start looking at, like, electrical drives, something more of an ion-based one being run by an, uh, by an atomic reactor. Uh, Ashley Johnson asks, do you think space debris will ever become such a hindrance that we can't leave our planet? No. Um, you could have accidents that happen that could cause a temporary drop in that, but there are solutions for dealing with that. I'm trying to remember what episode we talked about that in. Uh, I think it was Upward Bound series, probably Orbital Infrastructure. Um, if you're building a lot of stuff up in space, the hazard for it happening gets bigger and bigger, but your infrastructure for dealing with it gets bigger and bigger too. Uh, you can vaporize it, you can use a laser boom to, uh, you know, you, you heat up one side of it and that radiates it away, that you get a little bit of ablation and that kind of acts as a propellant to drive it down. So you could be using that to ablate the tops of things so they push down to the surface of the earth. But you need to have a very accurate detector grid uh, up there. The nice thing though is that lasers and radars work really well in space. So if you've got that infrastructure up there that's actually in danger of, of turning into um, uh, the, the, the debris cloud, um, you, it also means you are in a position to be putting all that equipment in place that would let you deal with that debris cloud. And you would want to have land-side things, too. If you're built up enough, you might be able to bring them in from another planet or the moon, but you'd want to have land-based facilities that could actually shoot those things up into space and take care of them, too. But... It could cause a serious inconvenience in the same way a bridge falling down could cause a serious inconvenience to, like, New York City. Uh, and that inconvenience could involve people getting killed, too, same as a bridge going down. But those aren't really civilization-threatening events, and I don't think Kessler Syndrome is in a position to do that either. It's one of those things where, oh, at most, you might need months to clear away the majority of the debris so it was safe again. Uh, <clears throat> Hydrogen Cyanide asks, How long do you think until we have brain simulations? Uh, human brain simulations, that's actually a good caveat because, um, you know, we could probably do an ant's brain or a lobster's brain right now. Um, decades. It, it, it's not just a technology issue of trying to put them together where you're either scanning people's brains or trying to 
Gesha way to simulating them, you're going to start hitting roadblocks uh, from bureaucratic and administrative angles. You get closer and closer to that. Um, we even see that now. Like 30 years ago, if people talked about AI, almost everybody was on the futurism angle would be saying, no, 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 we, we need to keep going forward with this stuff. It's, it's you know, not don't get worried by movies like Terminator or stuff like that. As we get closer and closer to it, we will see more and more folks on the futurism side start shifting to a more cautious approach. Uh, they say, we're getting close. We have a lot of advantages from this technology that we can see. We're already getting a lot of them, but we need to be careful. And at that point in time, I think you see a lot of regulations getting pushed into play that were telling people to, you know, they have to go through X, Y, and Z process in a much more scientific manner, like clinical testing these days. And that has its downsides. One of the slowest things getting us new medications is all the time delays that we have for uh, testing out new pharmaceuticals. Um, possibly more than is really a good idea to have, in fact, but um, you wouldn't want to get rid of those completely either. You know, they'd start having a lot of people get dead if we, we start getting rid of those clinical trials, and if you start getting rid of uh, you know, limitations on AI research, once we start putting those in play, you could end up with you know, the Skynet situation. And so I would tend to think that would be the one that slows down AI and human brain simulation the most, is just procedural things, but they're making you check and double-check every last bit as you go. Uh, Dexter asks, what do you think would be the immediate effects to a society with an equatorial space elevator? Uh, assuming we could build a space elevator, and say we did one off the coast of Brazil, that's one of the favorite places for it. Um, and it doesn't have to be exactly at the equator, uh, though that's handy. Um, same for launch sites. I mean, obviously that location, just because it makes space travel so much cheaper at that site too, so you'd be looking at potentially megatons of material going up there every year. There are limits as to how much mass you can push up a single space elevator, though. Um, I mean, that would become a very major city, potentially. You know, that's one of those places where somebody might, 20 years down the road, say, we should move the UN there. It's it's, it's kind of the center for our new growing civilization, and it's got no baggage on it. So that is, you know, for whichever place gets this, which would presumably be uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, or South America, that would be a very good economic boom for those locations. Um, and uh, you can kind of guess the same as me on what that would look like. You know, we had the gold rush in California in the uh, 1849, and uh, I don't think you can predict Silicon Valley or Hollywood from that. But I think that would see a big growth to that particular city. <clears throat> Uh, Bodie McLeod asks, would space-based solar power for use on Earth still be useful with commercially viable fusion uh, if we already had developed a large-scale system beforehand? Um, the, the notion there being, if you've got a big solar power network in space and somebody comes by and invents a cheap fusion plant, what happens to all that solar power? And the answer on that is, what's the cost differential between that fusion plant and that solar power? And you might have a phase-out, you know, period where where uh, the fusion is still very new, and they're getting it set up down on Earth. And during that time, you know, the solar power is just getting less maintenance or getting minor improvements that that stay in the fight longer. Um, or you might have a situation where it remains cheaper for certain applications. Um, you know, if you don't have good superconductors, you're going to have problems getting power to certain locations. If you've got a fusion plant that has to be a mile big, what good is that to the folks living on an island in the Pacific or in a small town in the middle of nowhere? So we can never assume any one given energy method is going to instantly replace all the others or that it would just destroy a given market, but it could change it around a lot. As to repurposing it, you, know, you could use them as solar shades or solar meals or just uh, grab them back and recycle them. Any solar power that we put in space is going to have a lifetime on that unit, uh, even if it's just a simple meal with a, a protected, shielded collector that it kind of bounces and concentrates that into. They're going to get scratched up, they're going to get damaged, and you're going to be constantly recycling them. So you might just pare them down, you know, pare down production on that, and uh, just slowly remove those to be used for other purposes, repurpose some, recycle them. Um, but you could certainly see an economic uh, loss in that area if you know if there's been a huge industry there and it suddenly gets replaced by something else. Well, that's nothing new to us. That that's something we deal with almost every year here. Some industry basically collapses as it gets replaced. So sometimes a slow collapse, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's only partial. They say that uh, TV killed the radio star, but I know tons of people still do radio. So um, sometimes it just changes what the niche to that. Uh, Gorgli, uh, B. Gorgli asks, by the way, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing people's names horribly here. 
how close are we to being able to use robots to build living areas or other useful things on the moon or near Earth? I'd say we're pretty much already there. Um, we need to focus a little bit more into prototyping them, and it is a little bit tricky because you're trying to make the smallest uh, thing you can, which means very little mass involved in you know the axles. You don't need them to be that thick. And it's hard to field test something in one gravity that's designed for 0.17 gravity in a vacuum. Um, so we're going to have to go through some prototyping phases there and some improvements once we actually do those. But I would say we're already at the point with our robotics that we could be doing that if we if we had a plan in mind for the moon. We'd have to go through a few years of deciding what kind of robots we needed and what kind of tasks they're doing, though. And that, fortunately, is probably one of those things that you can hold off on doing because they'll be improving every year, too, until somebody says, we want to do a moon base that's heavily focused on robots. And at that point in time, you can start prototyping those robots, and you have to replace them almost instantly um, as you find better designs that work better in that low-gravity, low-vacuum that you couldn't test until you actually had a facility there. Um, but I mean, in terms of basic robots, control interfaces, I'd say we are pretty much already there in terms of remote-controlled ones. Automated ones, a little bit less so. Uh, MJK asks, how do you think we'll actually refine metal ore from asteroids in zero-g? Is there a difference in technology that we use for that than what we use here on Earth? Uh, something worth noting on that is that we don't know that we would be doing it in zero-g. When you've, you could potentially, for instance, one thing that's been suggested is you put a big mylar bag around the asteroid and then just bake it and stuff comes out and you separate it as a gas. But you can also create, you know, if you're living on these things, you've got miners living on those things, they're going to have a gravity environment that they stay in if they're there for a while. They're going to need some gravity. And then you can just build your furnaces and smelters inside that pressurized uh, low gravity or normal gravity area that they would use then that's probably going to depend a lot on the specifics of how we are doing the asteroid mining in terms of getting the personnel or equipment out there, as well as on what elements being refined in that case, because some of them might have easier tricks, you know, better catalysts or systems that work really well with zero gravity or the vacuum than others. Uh, to speed up on these questions a bit, because we have a ton of them building up. Richard Clark asks, apologies if I missed this episode where this was in. If we can extend life by uploading ourselves into another body cyborg, what is stopping us from uploading ourselves into multiple bodies at the same time? I know we did cover that in an episode, but I can't remember which one it was. Um, maybe somebody can add that in the comments. But we have talked about using it as a way of doing space colonization, for instance. You you don't have enough people volunteering to go to other planets. You must send out millions of expeditions, but you've only got a 1,000 volunteers and need 500 per colony. So you just use combinations of, of that original 1,000 volunteers and each of your ships with, say, 500 people. And each of those is a pretty unique combination. There's so many perturbations you can do off of, uh, so not permutations you can do off of uh, you know, that supply. Uh, and that is one way you could do it. So, you know, you might be, uh, there might be a half a million of you on board, a million different colony ships going out to space. There's nothing that's particularly stopping you from doing that sort of thing. Um, whether or not you'd want to, and other people might object on ethical lines that you're essentially reproducing yourself. You know, questions like, if I make a copy of myself before the next election, should that copy of me be allowed to vote? You know, <laughs> so those are things people are going to start bringing up that would also say, um, what real value are we adding by just adding one more of you? And other people saying, I don't want a copy of me too. So on the technical end, there's nothing stopping you. On the moral or uh, ethical end, there, there could be issues that we'll have to think about. Mo Johnson asks, uh, could you use memory implants to reintegrate the results of assistant AIs? Uh, we were talking earlier about being able to take copies like that and reintegrate them, them into your own memories. Um, the problem is our own memories aren't really what you call digital and easily accessible. So trying to actually weave a new memory into someone's head um, could cause problems. And of course, science fiction shows us a lot of examples of implanted memories where people get tripped up by, uh, you know, they, they find out they've had their memory screwed with because of inconsistencies. And you have, I think, a lot of the same kind of problems that might cause psychosis in people. So I do not know nearly enough about neurology to know how to suggest how we go about doing that. But it should, in theory, at least be possible. And uh, if someone can find a, a decent way of doing it, then that would be very useful because you could then have copies of yourself that were off handling things while it was still basically you. Olympus Books asks, what do you think is the best neo-future method of deflecting potentially hazardous asteroids? Gigantic laser or nuclear bombs? Um, it, it kind of depends on the circumstances. It's, um, 
probably, and as nobody really wants to have a bunch of nuclear weapons hanging out in space, but if we get a little bit more built up in space, it would be a good idea to have some missiles that will seem out in orbit um, that you could, uh, and already fueled, that could, you know, track onto something like that and, and run out to meet it and blow it up. And uh, people say, well, if you nuke an asteroid, it's not going to do that much. So, well, I, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I do not know where people get the idea that you can't blow up a kilometer wide uh, asteroid with a nuclear bomb. If you intercept it too close, you're going to shotgun the planet, but that means intercepting it like closer than the moon is. If you're not detecting big asteroids until they're as close to the moon is, or that's as close you can intercept them, then you need to improve your grid. The other option that, that would be better in the long term, though, would be a, a good laser defense. You know, we talk about clearing space debris from around the planet in case we get Kessler syndrome. You want to have versions of that that you could use to just hit the side of an asteroid so that it, it warmed that up. And when you're warming that up, just like a comet, it produces a propellant trail. And that's going to push it off the side. So you laze one side of it, not to vaporize the whole thing, but just to give it a good push. And you don't necessarily want to deflect it too much because an asteroid's a valuable thing to a space-space industry. Um, you you know you see an asteroid coming your way, it's like a free payday because uh, that's resources up in space that's easily accessible if you can get into uh, an approachable orbit, not slamming into your planet. But if we see a push towards using things like light propulsion, laser propulsion, then problems like space debris, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm fond of laser propulsion. If you're using that system, you have a very good system in place for clearing debris or for dealing with potentially hazardous asteroids. This system you're already using to push ships back and forth. Can You can just take the ones that aren't being used for anything else right now or your extras or reserve ones and turn them on that asteroid and zzz, you know. All right. Um, Gehogan asks, uh, what audiobooks are you listening to right now? I actually just got done listening to, it's it taken me forever to get through the series, uh, Glenn Cook's Black Company. I think it actually, I talked about it in one of the episodes coming up just because it was on my mind. Uh, I started the series years and years ago, um, but I not gotten through to the later books. And um, I'm not sure which one I'm going to start because I literally just finished that a night or two ago. I was thinking about trying my hand with uh, Malaz and Book of the Fallen again. Um, I can never seem to get through Garlands of the Moon, which is the first book. Um, everyone tells me it's a really great fantasy series. Malaz and uh, Steve Erickson, I think, is the author. But uh, for some reason, I always get stopped in the first few chapters of that audiobook. Um, but maybe I'll give it a second try. Uh, as for Black Company, that's when I just finished up. Very good series. Um, uh, although I wasn't too happy with the newest book, Port of Shadows, that I guess had just come up. Um, it was, I mean, it was okay, it just wasn't great. Uh, very dark though. It's uh, something that comes up with fantasy series a lot for people who are watching them on TV but don't read the book series. They watch something like Game of Thrones and say, oh my god, that, that show, they kill off so many of the main characters. And it's like, Game of Thrones is actually very low on killing off main characters compared to most fantasy series. <laughs> so, his Black Company is obviously the exact opposite direction. Um, Richard Clark asks, if we can extend life by uploading ourselves into new bo- into a new body, what is stopping us uploading into multiple bodies at the same time, and what is the... We just didn't we already cover that one? I think we did already cover that one. Uh, H. Hogo asks Would one possible future of humanity be the construction of a way of Mashioska brain, Borch plant, shell wards, or do you think other mega structures will be more prominent in the future? Um, I would say that as a whole, um, the really big things like Borch plants or Mashioska brains. It's probably not something we'd see around this planet unless we go a very specific pathway of, I don't want to say evolution, because obviously it's not evolution when you're designing yourselves. Um, but uh, if we went completely digital, we might go the Matrioska route. Or if we decided we did not want our civilization spot over an entire galaxy, potentially making new threatening civilizations to those of us back home, then you might go the Borch route, where you're just importing matter in instead of colonizing our world. But by and large, I would think that you'd see a lot more of individual megastructures. And just because you build something like a Borch planet uh, or a Matryoshka brain does not mean that even in that system, let alone other systems, you wouldn't have other megastructures in place that were much more modest. I say uh, your default Dyson Swarm should probably feature almost all of these components. Large shell worlds that were mass-based gravity, lots of spinning habitats, lots of computation, lots of laser proportion things like the Nikol Dyson beam, um, and of course they all have the feature of being a shikata thrust or built into them. Um, and if you're task building though, you might go to a, a different style, probably not the solar system itself because that's, that's everybody's home. But you go colonize an individual 
solar system that nobody's using right now and turn that into a matriosca brain or a smaller borch planet. Again, when we say borch planet, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be one of the ones that's got many billions of, of uh, solar masses. We start that off as about, a, say, a million solar masses. So and that is something you could actually do many, place, many times over inside the galaxy. Um, question, um, I don't know if this is dressed for, but I would like to hear an informed non-political take on the U.S. Space Force idea Trump has spoken about. You know, Space Force comes up a lot, and I, I really do wish people would depoliticize that. The, the original setup we had in the, in the United States specifically was there was an army and a navy. And uh, there was a marine branch to the Navy that's still kind of technically part of them. And then we have a Coast Guard that popped up too. Separate branches that pop up because they are better at addressing things and because the people in those often feel that their priorities are not being as well handled by the officers that are more senior to them inside that branch. We had that with the Air Force, uh, Fort Sill, where I went to basic training in Osadat. Um, we used to be where the Air Force was out of uh, when it was part of the Army. And that broke off into its own separate command. Um, the Air Force has been covering most of our actual space-based stuff for a long time because they were best suited to it compared to the Army or the Navy, by and large. But a lot of the folks who win Space Command, which is an existing structure, or some of the other space-based uh, units, um, whether it's radar to space or satellite control, things like that, often do not feel that their priorities or their structure match up well with something like the Air Force. So we've been talking about doing one that was separate for a long time. And my only objection to that is I really don't like to make new branches of the military that are beneath division strength in terms of like full division strength, the 20,000 or so people. Um, and often when people want to break away with that, they're at maybe, you know, brigade strength or at most one core. And I do tend to feel like you're going to be a branch of the military. You should have like 100,000 plus people in that branch. Um, but... Uh, Otherwise, I tend to think you should be a sub-branch, because, you know, again, you can make field artillery. My own area, you know, has more people in it, and they could easily make it a separate branch of the military for that, but and that's just an administrative thing. Are we going to eventually need a separate space command, though, is the question, and the answer to that is yes. You're going to need a branch of the military that is focused strictly on space-based defense cases and concerns, like an asteroid thing. Um, and in that respect, this is just when it started happening. It's been being talked about uh, as early as Reagan, to be sure, but... Uh, Bush 1 and 2, Clinton, uh, President Obama, and President Trump have all discussed it, and this just, when it went over the line, decided to get looked at more seriously. Um, I, I don't think it's really a political topic at all, to be honest. Um, would space-based solar power, this is from MJK, um, uh, oh, sorry, this is from Brody again, would space-based solar power for use on Earth still be useful with commercially viable fusion? Some of these questions seem to be repeating. Let me scroll down for though. I think we, a few of these we just jumped over. Uh, normally we go to a break to sort that out, but I forgot to pre-record something, so we're actually going through the full hour this time around. Um, from my ask all, if you were able to contact aliens after how's your with the question after how's your uh, day been, etc., what would they be forcing you to ask? Okay, let me rephrase that. If we talk to aliens after we ask them how you're doing, what would be the first thing you would ask? Um, Hmm. Uh, that's a tricky one. Uh, are they talking to us in English or not? It's a big one. Because what you're looking for is where are they deceiving you or where are they confused? You're not really interested. This is not the time to be asking them things like uh, how does fusion work or how do, you know, how do we do warp travel. The first thing you're trying to establish is what their motivations are towards you. You want to see if they're going to lie to you or if they're going to give you information freely. So, you know, if you're asking, you know, can you give us the blueprints for fusion, while you'd love to have those blueprints, what you're really asking is, are you going to share your technology with us freely? Uh, or are you going to charge us in some fashion? Or are you planning to invade us? So any questions you're asking need to be kind of detailed around things like that. Um, for instance, if they send us a big lexicon of how their language works and it's not in all, the first question I'm going to be asking myself is, why aren't they speaking in English? Or why aren't they speaking in another um, uh, Earth tongue? Because they should know what it is already. And uh, it, it's... You're trying to find out, are they trying to keep it secret from you that they know how to speak your language? Or are they really insisting on using their language for some reason? And if so, why? What does that imply? So there's a second layer of that, because in many ways what you're doing is a uh, diplomatic session and interrogation, not a conversation. Um, Josh Pillick asks, how long do you think it will be until we become a type 1 civilization? 
um, you know, it's really bad to to look at the Khrushchev scale as a way of measuring civilizations. Um, Khrushchev did not mean it that way. That's a way of detecting things astronomically. It's not a good measurement. What it's telling you is how much power they use. Um, we use more power than our ancestors did, but not by much, especially considering our increases in population. We're much more efficient with it. We also don't really know um, how advanced a civilization is by their population size. Um, just that, you know, in general, it ought to be growing if they've got resources and technology that permit more of them to exist. Um, as to when we would be reaching that level of power, probably not this century, but you never know when somebody... We just wouldn't have a need for it. You know, you, you even if you can generate a ton of power, you have to have some actual use for it, to be using it, uh, to be going to the effort of, of making that much power generation. So it would take you a while to build up needing that much energy, unless, again, say somebody invents an easy way to make Google Bliss black holes, uh, you're charging up as batteries, then you might go all the way to a K2 civilization just at a couple of centuries as you produce meals and collectors as fast as you can, so you can store that energy. Um, but K1, in the sense of like a Eucomonopolis, I would tend to be thinking 25th century kind of time zones there, a little before, a little after, because you're looking at a population of a trillion, and I don't really see our population growth rates decreasing or increasing that much from what they are now, because they, what they're basically set on to um, is uh, essentially a technological level of, of, of choosing when you're going to have kids. People can start having them later. They'll probably be able to keep having them later as we make improvements to medical technologies for fertility. But you don't have as many accidental pregnancies. So people are having timed births to when they want. And that is probably not going to result in a very high growth rate. And it does take a while to get up to a trillion people, which is essentially when you're at a K1. Um, there's no reason to be a K1 in terms of power output until you're getting pretty close to about a trillion people. Um, <clears throat> question again from my school. Would synchronous uh, sections of space elevators, geosynchronous sections of space elevators become massive shipyards, docks, trade ports, solar farms, and habitats at uh, a given time? That would be, if you have space elevators, you would expect any kinds of industry or infrastructure to start going up around wherever they actually end out in space. Not necessarily at the geos, uh, geostationary locations, though. That might be further up, because, again, the, the elevator has to keep going to a counterweight at some point. And you might put a lot of your stuff there, because your counterweight's very massive, and it might as well be productive. So instead of just a big asteroid you've leashed there, you might want to have a big industrial complex or fuel depot there. Uh, David Dennis Andre, shout out from Romania. Uh, a quick question about nuclear reactors. Do you believe the heat can be used to melt the ice on an icy satellite at the same time produce power for an underwater colony? Oh, sure. Um, whenever you're doing power generation, you have a lot of heat left over from it. Uh, that's actually one of the appeals of power satellites, even if you have something like fusion, is you can just beam down the microwaves and convert them at about 80%, 90% efficiency to electricity. Whereas the fusion reactor, you're probably going to be looking at 20 to 30%, maybe 40%, like a lot of you know, ground-based reactors have, and the rest comes off as waste heat. Waste heat's always a problem for us here on Earth, but it's not on an icy moon. There, it's handy. You use it to warm place up, to melt ice. You know, if you want to go um, check out what's underneath Europa, you can drill through 10 kilometers of ice, or you can send a big, heavy, radioactive pod that would just melt its way down with a tether on it. So yeah, you could definitely make power that way. Mr. Enclave asks, how do we turn digital copies of animals' DNA to actual living animal for colonization? Uh, we often talk about storing DNA for these trips, and I do tend to use DNA as a bit of a um, ballpark blanket term for all the stuff involved in that. There are other things that are involved besides your DNA and actually recreating a creature. You know, there are a lot of enzymes we have. I was like a million different species of bacteria in our guts alone that you need to make sure you're having for all that. Not to mention there's a lot of things involved in the reproduction of a cell that are not specific to your DNA. Um, you would have to ask a biologist for specifics on how we do that theoretically. I can tell you it's physically possible, but the method for doing that, that's a biologist question. Uh, Cooper asks, what is your favorite timeline for interstellar colonization? Um, I've actually been confusing my mods with the people asking questions. So, what is your personal timeline for interstellar colonization? Where we'll go, megastructures used, not used. Um, I would be surprised if we ended the next century, the 22nd century, without having sent something into interstellar space. And I don't mean like Voyager or Pioneer or something going at 1% of the speed of light in that kind of range. Um, but I would not really expect us to do much colonization until it's gotten quite cheap. 
um, you know, you would probably try for something like Proxima Centauri just to see if you can do it. But before that, so I tend to think that you would probably see very little interstellar colonization, just a few field projects, the equivalent of like McMurdo uh, in, in Antarctica um, for the next few centuries. And then after that, as real estate gets to be more used up as we move towards a sort of a, a proto-Dyson here in this system, you start having people talking about putting together very large expeditions to empty solar systems. And I don't think that the limitation on that is really going to be technology, though you obviously have to get a certain amount of technology, an extra bit of technology is going to make it easier and easier if you get more of it. But I think it's more going to be driven by population increase, you know, and, and, and how much people want for themselves, too. If your idea is to have a whole asteroid or neosolar to yourself, then you probably are going to see a much faster expansion. Or if you're breeding like crazy, too. So it's just going to depend on how we expand. It's so, and in case like that, you can tell it's going to happen at some point just because all it takes is a little bit of growth. But you don't know if that's going to happen in a couple hundred years or it might take 10,000 years. It's small by astronomical timelines, but pretty big by human history timelines. Uh, Alistair Sinus uh, asks, uh, not sure if weaponiz- weaponization of space colonies a la Gundam was described, but how viable would a colony, be- colony drop be as a WMD analogy? You do not drop an O'Neill cylinder on a planet to, to cause damage. Um, people forget when something's in orbit, it's moving. It's it's not hanging there. It's moving around. Now, an orbital ring is, but these would just fall down and like like a power line falling down. It's not going to cause tons of damage. If something's orbiting the planet, to make it fall down on the planet, you have to push on it hard enough that it's going to at least get into the atmosphere to start burning up. And if it's just skimming things, this is a very thin, wide cylinder. You could easily shoot it while it was decaying in its orbit so that it broke up into a bunch of pieces and burned up. Um, and uh, things that don't burn up might be hitting like terminal velocity because it's mostly a bunch of flat plates, right? It's thin metal sheets. Um, that's not to say it would be, uh, you know, something we could just have happen and wouldn't cause any damage, but things dropping out of orbit and hitting the Earth is really not uh, a good approach to causing damage compared to just using those weapons that you use to shoot the place in the first place. Apex Tyrannus asks, Isaac, what do you think about the fully reusable 100-ton to LEO Stage 2 spaceship that SpaceX is building and testing in Texas right now? With everything with SpaceX, I always like to prognosticate on it a year after it happens, because when they first came out, I did not think they were going to do very well. Um, I, I like Elon Musk, and I like a lot of his ideas, but I tend to always be a little bit naturally skeptical about a lot of the early privatization of space. It's just one of those growing up in the post-Apollo era, you're always a little bit cynical. Even even I get kind of cynical about it. Um, so I love being proved wrong, but I, I always tend to hedge the cynical side. So I wish it well, and uh, he's got a proven track record of doing very well on space flight. So I, I, I think that's not really one of those things where it's a wish and a prayer. Or just, you know, we'll see how it goes. I think it's got good odds of being successful. Uh, David Evans asks, do you believe that ultimately all high-order intelligence would have to be non-biological based because of limitation of synapses? Uh, I always feel like we're going in the wrong direction when we try to talk about something being um, mechanical versus uh, biological. You have a substrate your mind's on. It doesn't really matter what that is in terms of my consciousness, so I'm going to work for the best one that works for me for what I'm doing. That might be metal, that might be flash. Uh, It probably is not going to be flash, though. Um... But you could build bigger. You know, you get a time lag. Uh, we were talking, uh, it's actually our book for the month for um, for February, uh, House of Suns. They give an example of a biology-based superintelligence where the guys just kept getting bigger as time went on. Uh, and you actually you got Bean from the uh, uh, Ender's Game series. That's a similar case to that. He turns into a giant. Uh, and when you're working in the, you know low gravity, you can get away with some very large bodies, potentially. So it slows down the rate at which you're connecting things. But when you're making a bigger brain, you're getting more total processing. It just happens slower individually. So you could potentially uh, get pretty speed up there. And you also don't have to assume that you're necessarily going all in on something like that. You could have just the connections, the synapses. You might replace those with superconductors that just send the signal instantly. Still using an organic template, but now that's instant from point A to point B. And if you're going at the speed of life for synapses, you could take a brain the size they are now and expand out the size of this planet, and it would actually have the exact same speed. That's that's the scale difference there. Um, <clears throat> Cluckery Duckery, as a fellow Ohioan, do you foresee any possible future technologies that could get cities in Ohio to actually put plows on the road to make major snowfalls? 
Um, yeah, for everybody who is in Ohio or this general area of the world right now, we, we did just get whacked with snow very bad. I think I got nine inches on the back porch. I have to get knocked off soon. Um, and I can't wait to summertime when I can actually use my deck because I built it late in the year, so I haven't barely got to use it yet. Um, I don't really see a lot of good ways to, to apply easy technological fixes to things like roads and plows. Um, I sometimes think the easiest method might be just to actually dome them over with, uh, with vents in them to help with the air pressure. And that might cut down a lot of weather damage. We do this with uh, Ashbeelow, Ohio. It's actually one of the things we're very proud of in my county is our covered bridges. And um, they look very pretty. They have big wooden bridges over them. But we actually save money on them, uh, at least a little bit, because we don't have to maintain them as much because there's a big covered bridge. You know, they're not getting a lot of rain and snow on them. And, uh, of course, we use them as tourist traps, too. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, I don't want to say underground roads, because that's very expensive, but potentially covered or pavilion roads might be uh, a thing to be looking at down the road. Certainly, I'd rather put solar panels on a pavilion over a road than down on a road, as some folks have suggested putting solar panels on roads, which is, this strikes me as a bad idea, um, at least with current solar technology. <laughs> I do wish it would stop snowing here, though, at the moment. Uh, question... Do you think in the next century or two, soldiers will tend to use regular bullet guns, rail guns, lasers, or something else? Chemical propellants right now are pretty much the only approach you can really use for something that we think of as a rifle or gun. If somebody gets way better with batteries, you might be able to get something like a rail gun, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Probably more likely smart guns, where the bullet had a little, feels like a micro-missile and had some propellant or a controller inside it. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes left, so let's see how many more questions we can get to. Uh, Waleed asks, if we can upload a brain into multiple bodies, do you, don't you think that civilization will reject over-representing one person's opinion? Okay, that was going back to the idea that you might make a copy of yourself, and if I make a copy of myself, can my copy vote? Right? Um, and of course, that's problematic because I would say, like, if I just made a copy of myself today and walked into the polls and voted, that would seem like we really should only get one vote. But if I make a copy of myself 10 years back, who's gone off and lived his own life, then I would say that person gets to have two votes. But this is one of those examples where we don't really have a good precedent on it in terms of what we're doing to be able to make kind of legalistic decisions. So it is a good idea to start talking about it sooner than later. Um, and yeah, I mean, that would be an issue. If somebody comes by and makes a million copies of themselves, those million all get to vote. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you maintain those as a site? Can you just tell someone you can't make a million copies of yourselves? You know, we usually don't have such a problem with overpopulation in terms of breeding. We'd say, you need to stop having kids because people can only have so many kids in their lifetime. If you've got a cloning machine in your garage, though, you can ramp that up rather quickly. A uh, question from Aaron. How do you maintain your optimism for the future despite all the evidence for the contrary? I think that's probably the, the false economy in there is I don't really see a lot of evidence for a bad future. Um, I'm not that old. Um, in fact, I've noticed my Wikipedia page has me listed 1982 as when I was born. I was born in 1980. But uh, they're helping me lie about my age there. Um, but just in my lifetime, I've seen so much progress, uh, not just technologically, but in so many areas. There are, you know, there are so many things that, uh, and we won't get into the specifics of that because the political and controversial stuff we avoid. But... Um, you know, I think just in general, human rights across the planet, uh, prosperity across the planet, um, things like literacy rates and, uh, you know, the uh, starvation rates, these are all positive indicators. And that's only been a generation or two. And it's nothing compared to like the Green Revolution from, you know, uh, just a generation before that. So, no, it's not very hard for me to maintain optimism about the future. Um, and as I said, I don't think it's a naivety about the world. I, it's, we can be cynical about individual people's motives or, you know, saying there's not going to be a utopia. But by and large, things have continued to improve fairly regularly. It's like the stock market. It, it mostly goes up over time, but uh, it bounces a bit. Um, Saploid asks, what do you think about using the engineering feats as a method of categorizing levels of civilization? I don't think technology is a good way. To, we were saying earlier that the Kardashev scale is not a good way to measure civilizations. I don't think technology is a particularly good way to measure it either. Um, you're probably not going to have any one system that works too well. But um, I'm going to say the technological advancement is a good way to measure a civilization. You'd have a much bigger civilization that was less technologically advanced, for instance, but that would still be ignoring that, um, you know, primitive primitive is not stupid. And that's that's a problem that people make sometimes with that is, uh, you know, 
the level of technology and science that we have available to us does not necessarily speak to our ethical character or advancement on things. Um, but technology as a measurement, you, we do periods like that. I'd say the steel age, the steel era, iron age, uh, copper, you know, industrial era. These are kind of technological measurements, but we use these as measurements when we only have archaeological evidence of those civilizations. When we have periods that we have actual history of, we generally talk about the culture that was there, the, you know, the, the various dynasties or civilizations that were going on. Uh, David Major asks, would it be more wise to start terraforming Mars right now if humans wanted to go live there in the future, and what are the limitations of this? I wouldn't see any reason to start terraforming Mars, honestly, any time in this century, um, unless we get really good at it. It's, it takes a lot of effort, resources, and um, you know, it's a long process, so as uh, was Napoleon said, is if you uh, want to have the soldiers marching underneath the shade, you need to start planting the trees today, not tomorrow. Um, but uh, the sooner we get started, the better. But you got to wait till there's actually a good reason to be investing in those kind of resources because there are other things we can do with those resources in the short term for, for space expansion alone, let alone for other issues. Uh, Landon Webass, are you worried we may be species trapped on Earth by Kessler Syndrome? No, I think we talked about that one earlier. I, I really don't see that as a threat to us in any sort of civilization-destroying sense, something that might just cause problems temporarily. Um... Question, can we build orbital space habitats by 2040? I don't think that we will build anything much bigger than a relatively small rotating habitat before then, but we'll see. And something potentially is because uh, Kaplana 1, uh, the one that we often show on the channel that uh, Brian had made, um, you could potentially build something like that as early as 2040, but I would tend to think, they'd say um, I'm a little bit more skeptical about getting something like that up there as soon as 2040. Uh, Alejandro asks, what are your thoughts about the reality ascribed on the Expanse series and books? Those are two very different um, different series in some ways. Um, they're both great, though. I'd say that with the exception of the hand waves they put in there, um, this is one of the more accurate series in terms of looking at uh, things. It's got its flaws, of course. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd definitely recommend it as a good piece of relatively hard science fiction. Uh, and then Stephen asks, uh, thank you for answering my previous question. You're very welcome. A friend suggested a way to kickstart space industry by collapsing a precious metal asteroid on the moon and mine it there rather than uh, on an asteroid. The thought is, could you slam something into the moon and then go mine it there? Um, and the idea, I think, would be that it's not going to be hovering around the planet and you can use that to grab off its excess speed. Because you can't just tow something back to Earth and have it stop. It's still got all that speed involved. I would not want to drop things on the moon, though, by and large. Uh, it's certainly full of craters already, but uh, I don't know that we want to add any more. I think in most of those cases, you'd be better off mining it there, um, wherever it would start off at, and just bringing home what you wanted. Or if you really want all that mass in orbit around Earth, just to bring it back in pieces, probably, to, to Earth. Uh, and I think this is going to be our last question for the day. Michael asks, um, what are the best suggestions for recording current events, thoughts, and inventions for tomorrow's history? Most mass media is rather perishable and thus unsuitable as far as I know. That's always a good question because we don't really build data storage with the intent of it being really long-lasting because there's always an additional cost when you try to make something sturdier. And with our current digital storage mediums, you know, every five to ten years, they are completely outclassed by something new. So why build a hard drive that can last for a century when you're going to replace it with something cheaper and better uh, in a couple of years? We all starting to see a bit of a slowdown on that, especially on recording media. I mean, we got the SSD drives now, but uh, HDD drives have not really improved that much from the basic platter design um, in the last decade. I mean, there's been improvements, but not really big ones. Um... And there's also that speed of access issue. That has to do with commercial usage of data. If you just want to store data, you don't want to do it at the atomic scale because you're losing a bit every time even a particle comes in there, a radioactive particle comes in and erases a bit. I would say probably if you really want to store data, um, you probably use really big platinum or iridium plates that you are carving uh, you know, redundant sections of data onto too, of course, but relatively large bits, you know, at least several nanometers across each, and that would probably be the way I would think of doing that, but that would be a question I would ask if we use more of the hardware of computers. I have to admit, I've never really looked into that too much, but, you know, you can maybe inscribe them into data. I remember they always had the uh, originaling, originaling crystal sheets in Dune, these little tiny sheets they could store 
you know, millions of pages and stack this high on. And they were really long lasting. And obviously that's something we would like to have, though, uh, in more digital format. Um, and of course, that's the question you're storing data for a really long time. You want to make sure that whoever's accessing it later on doesn't really need a lot of specific knowledge and technology to, you know, to figure out what it is. You've got a civilization that digs up a sheet of metal, and they don't really realize that it's covered in terabytes of data. So they're like, oh, this is cool. Let's nail it to a wall somewhere. Uh, or, you know, let's melt this down because it's cheap platinum. So it's not just a question of, store, you know, durability, but also of, of visibility, making sure it's still going to be there, that it's not buried underneath something. All right, so that was where we're going to go ahead and close out for today. Again, our upcoming episode this week is going to be um, Space Prison Colonies, be a little more on the sci-fi side as we examine that kind of concept. Then uh, we might have another episode in between, but then January 31st is going to be... Uh, a discussion of panspermia and the Fermi paradox, and then we'll get into the February schedule, and uh, we will probably have another one of these with a guest on, though I don't want to see who the guest will be for sometime mid-next month, and uh, we'll give you details on that as we get up to it, and then hopefully we'll return to the end-of-the-month system after that. Anyway, thank you for joining me today, and I know we didn't get to everyone's questions. I do read them afterwards. I just can't keep track of them all while we're live, so... Thank you for asking questions. There were some very good questions today, and we will see you Thursday.